The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 7 together. We're going to look at all of chapter 7 because it is one event that needs to be looked at holistically and together, so we don't want to chop it up. We want the continuity of it all. Before we get to chapter 7, to set some background on the stage for you, the, the book of Revelation, we're going to go through the whole thing because that's the way John wrote it. That's the way it was intended when he gave it to his local churches 2,000 years ago. He didn't have chapter divisions. It was just probably one long old scroll or whatever it was that he wrote on, animal skin, huge, massive thing. 21 chapters worth, start at the beginning, go to the end. That's what we're going to do. We're going to understand it the way John gave it and wrote it and the way God intended it to be understood as the church. So we've gone through the first six chapters of Revelation. Uh, John was the last of the 12 apostles. The 11 other apostles were murdered, killed for their faith as Christians. John was spared that and was allowed to live a long life, probably died as an old man, but still underwent persecution like the rest. And so he's writing the book of Revelation probably around 95 A.D., which would make it the last book written in the Bible, uh, the last book written of the New Testament, which is quite appropriate because it's God's last word on everything, the book of Revelation. It's like the last final, conclusive, climactic chapter in a great story that brings closure to everything. That is exactly by God's design what Revelation is and is intended to be for the Bible. Uh, It's the last chapter of God's Word on world history and really on eternal events. So it's very appropriately put at the end of what we call the canon of Scripture. And so John wrote this while a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos out in the see away from the mainland for being a Christian, being persecuted. Um, And if you just look by way of introduction, chapter 1, to remind us, verse 19, John gives us a very helpful outline of this book so we don't get lost. Jesus, talking to John, as he's an old man on the island of Patmos, Jesus appeared to him and told John, write down, therefore, the things which you have just seen, the vision of what you just saw about me in my glory. Write that down. And that became chapter 1. And then Jesus said, secondly, I want you to write down the things which are currently going on, the things which are, things relevant to the church age, the seven churches of Asia Minor that you are familiar with, some of which you pastored and planted those churches. That's Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the things which are. And there's carryover of chapter 2 and 3 to the entire church age for 2,000 years. We know that because every one of those seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 ended with a promise, not just to the local church 2,000 years ago, but the Spirit of God said to those who have an an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, So there's pertinent application for us in the church age. And then the third part of the book is yet future. It is prophetic. And that's the bulk of the book. And that's at the end of verse 19 in chapter 1. Jesus said, after you've written the vision of me, after you write about what's going on in the churches here in Asia Minor, chapters 2 and 3, then write about the things that shall take place after these things. That is a technical phrase in the book of Revelation used repeatedly. After these things. It's an adverbial phrase. And it's like an adverb of time, of sequence, of chronology. So this is a hint to us that Revelation is going to be a sequential chronological book. It's going to go in order. After these things. And so we see that repeatedly. After these things, after these things, after these things. We're going to see that in Revelation chapter 7 as well. After these things. So it's going to be in order. So we're not confused. You just read it at face value. It's pretty simple. Uh, But chapters 4 
through the rest of the book and Revelation are all future. They have not happened yet. Contrary to what some would tell us that all the stuff going on in Revelation 4 to even chapter 19 has already happened in history or it's happening right now. I would say absolutely not. It's all future. It hasn't happened yet. We know that for many reasons. Uh, but the bulk of the future prophecy that John is going to write about has to do with the seven-year tribulation. And I said some theologian, didn't, some dispensationalist did not make up the term great tribulation. Jesus did. That's the term he used. He coined that phrase. And he was really alluding to and paraphrasing Revelation chapter 12. I mean, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. So 550 years before Jesus taught, Daniel the prophet talked about the time of the great tribulation. He referred to an event in a period of time that would come upon the whole world, a time of distress or trouble, Daniel called it, that was greater than any other troubled period in the history of the world or ever shall be. It is universal, it is unprecedented, it is a time of distress. And Jesus pretty much re-quoted that and put new specific information to it in Matthew 24, and Jesus called it the Great Tribulation. And Jesus said there's going to be a Great Tribulation on earth in the future, a time that will occur that has nothing like it in the history of the world or ever shall be. That is significant. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you have your finger in uh, Revelation 7 now, I do want to refer to Jesus' very words in Matthew 24, or if you just want to listen, because it's just one verse I want to point out. Matthew 24, just before Jesus' death, he told his disciples about what was going to happen in the future, about during, primarily what's going to happen during the tribulation and events leading up to the tribulation and then his coming, which happens after the tribulation. And he calls it the great tribulation. Uh, in Matthew 24, 21, Jesus says this, for then in the future, there will be, see it's future, a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever shall this will be the greatest most disastrous time period in the history of the world for many reasons i mean think about it it's going to be greater than the flood how can a future event be greater than the flood in terms of its decimation and wrath well the flood was worldwide and universal that's pretty devastating Killed everybody on planet Earth except for eight people. The Great Tribulation will be even greater than the Flood. One of the reasons why is it will be universal, but it will last longer. It's going to last seven years. The Flood lasted, you know, 40 days the rain was coming down, and they were on the ark for about a year. This will be seven years. And there are way more people living on Earth during the Great Tribulation than there were during the time of the Flood. So this is going to be the greatest disaster the world has ever known. It hasn't happened yet. It wasn't the Black Death it hit the Middle Ages. It killed millions of people. Uh, but we know from Revelation chapter 6, we already read it, that at one point, one-fourth of the world's population is going to die during the Great Tribulation. One-fourth of the population didn't die during the Black Death. Uh, it's going to be more devastating than World War II. It's going to be more devastating than the AIDS epidemic. Anything. Everything else is just going to be a mere shadow of what's going to happen in terms of the significance of this event. That's why Jesus called it the Great Tribulation. Unprecedented in all of world history. Um, and with that, I just want to read Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 one more time because Jesus tells the church, he tells Christians what their relationship is to this seven-year time period where God is really just going to pour out his wrath upon the unbelieving world in a way he never has done before. 
uh, Revelation 3.10, because you, the, the faithful believers in the church of Philadelphia, and I believe this promise extends to all Christians throughout the church age in light of verse 13 of Revelation 3, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, you've been a faithful Christian, I also, I, the Lord Jesus, will keep you. I will protect you from the hour, the period, the time period of testing. What time period? Or of trial? Well, that time period of that hour, which is about to come upon the whole world to test, to punish those who dwell upon the earth, to punish earth dwellers, to, to punish rebels and unbelievers. So that's a good promise for believers. That is a warning for unbelievers. So let's go ahead and look at this time period and let's flip over to uh, Revelation 7, 1 through 17. And we're picking up uh, on the tales of Revelation 6. Just by summary, Jesus was in heaven. John saw the vision. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. He has all authority. He is the savior. He is God incarnate in a resurrected body. And he and only he has the authority to take the, the deed of the earth and the culmination of world history from the father. And Jesus takes the scroll and is a seven sealed scroll. And Jesus is the only one that has the authority to peel back each one of these scrolls. And every time Jesus peels back a seal from the scroll, Information about the future tribulation is unveiled one step at a time, progressively, sequentially, chronologically. And so Jesus begins to peel away these seals one at a time as more and more information is given. And so he peeled away six seals in Revelation chapter 6. And with each peeling of a seal, some devastating event hits the earth. And so the first seal was the uh, the white horse that brings about a false peace where one centralized Evil, wicked power secures and consolidates all world power in their lap. And they do it, for the most part, peacefully, but it is a deception. It is a false peace, much like Adolf Hitler took 13 to 14 years to secure consolidated, unified peace in Germany. For the most part, without bloodshed. And then when he had solidified all of his power, he unleashed his fury. And that's what this is going to be. So that was the first seal the white horse, a false peace. And then we saw the second seal, which is a red horse, speaking of the sword and of death and uh, humans slaughtering one another, probably the government slaughtering people. Uh, the third seal was a black horse, which spoke of famine in the tales of uh, all this widespread death that was going on around the world. Uh, the fourth horse was the ashen Clorox looking horse that had death and Hades following up behind it. And a fourth of the population is going to be slaughtered almost instantaneously, which is mind-boggling because that would be two billion people today. Nothing like it in the history of the world. Uh, seal number five were martyrs under the altar who had been killed during the tribulation and they're praying to God for vengeance and for wrath to come down on unbelievers, for justice. And God's going to answer that prayer and he's going to pour out his wrath in answer to that prayer. And then we saw the sixth seal and that was last week, 12 through 17 in Revelation chapter 6, and that was these worldwide universal cosmic disasters all happening at the same time, uh, worldwide earthquakes and mountains shaking all over the world and uh, meteorites hitting and pummeling the earth, uh, the sun turning color, the moon turning color. And it's frightening to all the people living on the earth at that time because they know this is the wrath of God and the wrath of Jesus Christ. And so at the end, they, they don't repent. They shake their fist at God up in heaven. We know this is you, Jesus and so that's why in Revelation 6 last week we saw these unbelievers who don't repent try to hide themselves. Uh, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks where they were hiding, fall on us. So they're trying to commit suicide to hide from the presence of him who sits on the throne. They're hiding from God and from the wrath 
of the Lamb. They know this is the wrath of Jesus Christ. And they're running from it. They're very specific. This is the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17, and John makes this supernatural and inspired comment through these wicked people and says, for the great day of their wrath has come. The great day of their wrath has come. This is really a technical phrase taken out of the Old Testament that's repeated time and time again called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was a period of time in the future during the tribulation when God would pour out his wrath on unbelievers. And now it has come. The day of the wrath of the Lord. And their question here sets up chapter 7. So all these unbelievers are saying, for the great day of their their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Who is able to endure and possibly live through and handle the wrath of God during the tribulation? No one. It's a rhetorical question. And that's the perspective of the unbelievers during the tribulation. Who is able to stand against the wrath of Jesus Christ? And John's inspired answer to that question, who is able to stand during the tribulation? The answer is in chapter 7, because there's actually two groups of believing people who are able to stand and resist the wrath of God during the time of the tribulation. So let's go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 7 and these two specific groups. And as you're reading this, you might want to make a distinction between verses 8 and 9 because in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 refers to one group of believers who are actually uh, different than the second group. Uh, This group of believers in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, they're alive during the tribulation at some point. They're living on earth. And they're different than the second group that's mentioned. So it's a specific and distinct group in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Then verses 9 through 17 refers to another group of believers that are alive during the time of the tribulation. And both groups, they're believers. They know God personally. They believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they are different and distinct groups. But both those groups are going to actually be protected by God in a unique way, and they will withstand the wrath of God during the tribulation that God pours out on earth dwellers. Let's go ahead and read about these two groups. Chapter 7, verse 1 says this, After this, again, that chronological, sequential, adverbial time moniker that is used all throughout Revelation, after this, a sequence of events. In other words, after the six seals, before the seventh seal, this is what's going to happen in the future. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I, John the Apostle, saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And if you're doing your math very quickly and very carefully, that's 144,000. The Bible doesn't make mistakes. That was the first group. This group of people who are believers are of the sons of Israel. They are Jewish. They're Jewish believers in the future. Well, who's the second group of people during this time? 
at about the midpoint of the tribulation. Verse 9, well, here's the second group. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. So there's a distinction here. Uh, The first group could be counted. It was 144,000 exactly and literally. It's not a figurative number. It's not symbolic. It's not allegorical. It's really 144,000 Jews. This is different. It's a great multitude that can't be counted. They're innumerable, myriads upon myriads. Too many to count. That's the implication. After these things, I look and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and every tribe and people and tongue. See, there's another distinction. These aren't Jews like the first group was just simply ethnic Jewish believers. This is a mixed multitude that no one can count. Gentile, believing Gentiles. And there's probably some Jewish people thrown in there because it's all inclusive. These are representatives from all of the earth who believed in Christ during the tribulation and were saved. Massive amount of people from every nation, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They are up in heaven, contrary to the first group who was on earth. So all these contrasts and distinctions. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Remember those believers in Revelation 6 under the fifth seal who had white, they were given white robes. They were under, under the altar of God, praying in heaven. God, avenge our blood of those who murdered us. Those were... Saints who were murdered during the tribulation and they had white robes. They're under the altar and now they are before the altar of God. White robes in glory, righteousness, victorious, palm branches, a sign of victory in their hands before God, worshiping God. Verse 10, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, deliverance to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. So that's why we know this is in heaven where the four living creatures are and the 24 elders, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God and they sang that great song that we just sang, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Verse 13, And one of the elders answered to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and from where have they come? Verse 14, And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him night or day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat for the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd, literally shall be their pastor. What a beautiful term. Jesus will be their pastor. And shall guide them to springs of the water of life and fulfillment of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. But they don't have the valley of death to worry about anymore. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. These two groups of people who God's going to protect in a unique and special way during the time of the tribulation and give comfort to in answer to that question, who is able to escape the wrath of the Lamb? Let's go ahead and look at it, uh, these two groups. The first group, I've already hinted at it, is uh, verses 1 through 8, and that's earthly protection during the great tribulation. Earthly protection that is provided during the great tribulation. And this is for believing Jews. Believing Jews. Uh, I would say it should be earthly protection because they're on earth. 
So the boo-boo is probably my fault there. But anyway, uh, they are protected by God during this time of the tribulation. By the way, this is about midpoint. And that's why he just makes a stop. Okay, here's the first six uh, seals. That's before Jesus called that the beginning of birth pangs. The great tribulation hasn't been unveiled yet. The abomination of desolation at midpoint uh, through. So six seals have happened. We've got a seventh seal yet to happen, which is about the middle of the tribulation and carries on to the end of the tribulation. And as the tribulation progresses, uh, the judgment from God heightens and gets more and more severe, as does the persecution of the Antichrist during the tribulation is also mounting incrementally. And so God is going to protect a group of people down on earth who believe in him. And that's what we want to look at is these believing Jews. So let's go ahead and look at this unique group of believing Jews. A couple of comments I want to make regarding these Jews. Um, I would say they are Jews because in verse 4, notice, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, Israel is, was the name of one of the sons, or of one of the sons of Abraham. He used to be Jacob. He became Israel, the one who wrestles with God. And then Israel had 12 sons. They became God's people in the Old Testament, and out of which those, that family came the Messiah. Israel is the most used proper name of a human being in the entire Bible. Israel. It's used hundreds, if not thousands of times in the Old Testament. A hundred percent of the time, the word Israel always means Israel in the Old Testament without exception. And I would also propose in the New Testament, the word Israel always means Israel without exception. So you can't spiritualize it and say this is the church. Uh, that just that undermines what the Bible teaches very clearly. Israel is Israel. A Jew is a Jew. This is these are ethnic Jewish people from the loins of Abraham through the very specific bloodline. They are the sons of Israel. We need to take it literally. There's no reason not to. Uh, this is uh, future Israelites that God is going to restore, call out in fulfillment to literally hundreds of promises in the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis chapter 12, God chose Abraham and the Jewish people as a select special group of people that he would bless the whole world through. And he would do it through the nation of Israel. And he made an eternal covenant with the nation of Israel. And God said, I swear on myself, I will never break my eternal covenant with Israel. This is Israel. And there are hundreds of promises that still need to be fulfilled to the nation of Israel. And many of those are fulfilled during the time of the tribulation and the millennium. So God is honoring his covenant that began with Abraham and the people of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Very important. So these are real Jews. Uh, verse 2 says, and I saw, oh, starting at the first verse, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. These are angels of God. They are very powerful. What are they doing? Well, they're holding back the four winds of the earth. These are winds of judgment that God's about to pour down on the earth. And God's saying, okay, wait a minute, whoa, I don't want to go on with my judgment of seal number seven yet because first I've got something I've got to do. I've got to protect some of our saints. So hold off on the winds. So these four angels are holding off on God's judgment, restraining his evil, a little hiatus in the tribulation here. So that, in the middle of verse one, that he, uh, no wind would blow on the earth and damage anything. Verse 2, and I saw another angel of God ascending from the rising of the sun, which would be from the east. So John, the apostle at the island of Patmos, as he looked at the rising of the sun, that would be the east or the land of Palestine from where the Savior came or salvation comes from. That's the whole implication there. From the east, God's place of residence on the earth, from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. This angel possesses authority from God to seal, to protect. And the word seal used twice here in verse 2 and 3 is the same word that was used of a king who had a signet ring. 
and with it he would make his mark in hot wax and stamp it with authority to show that it had authenticity and also was a sign of security and of protection. And so this is security and protection authorized by God himself that he's going to put a seal on certain people to protect them during the time of the tribulation, especially the last three and a half years. And it is the seal of the living God. Well, what is the seal of the living God? It doesn't tell us in Revelation 7, but I think it does tell us later, Revelation 14.1, same group of people. John says, and I looked and behold, the lamb, that's Jesus, was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads, written on their foreheads. You think, well, that's kind of weird putting a mark on their forehead. Weird. I mean, come on, it's 2010. We've got tattoos all over the place, don't we? It's just the business. Even religious people have things on their forehead, you know, whether it's Hinduism or Roman Catholicism during Lent with the ashes on their forehead, go out publicly. So this is, this is just normal all throughout history in terms of religion and identification. And it will still be true in the future. And so God is going to put his seal on their forehead to mark them out as his own. They will be secured in a very special and unique and personal way from God himself. Seal of the living God. They belong to the Father and Jesus. And they're in my hand and no one can snatch them out. That's the implication there. The seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice, uh, to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. See, they're going to they're gonna harm the earth in just a second with seal number seven. Verse three saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until until we have sealed the bond servants of God, which are the 144,000 believing Jews during the tribulation. We need to seal them. By the way, this seal is counterfeited by Satan himself and the Antichrist. Because the word for seal here is different than the word for mark that we're going to see in Revelation 13, where the Antichrist marks his followers and does the same thing. He marks them on the forehead. And that word for mark in Revelation 13 was used for what they would do with branding an animal. Very different. Or what pagans would do in branding tattoos that were permanent in their body to false gods or marking slaves. So Satan always has his counterfeit. And it's right on the forehead or right on the wrist. And Satan is going to do that through the Antichrist in the future. So God will seal and protect his own. Satan will mark his own. Verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe and sons of Israel. And I said, I believe this is literally 144,000 people. And all kinds of commentators and even religions have taken this 144,000 and made it all spiritual for uh, either the church or countless believers through the ages or only a select few uh, Christians who are going to be saved. No, it's 144,000 Jews who are going to be saved during the tribulation who are going to fulfill their calling from the Old Testament where God was going to use them in a unique way to reach the ends of the earth and the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ in fulfillment to listen to this verse, Isaiah 45:22, and many others I could quote. Where God in the future, during the time of the tribulation, that's the context, God will quote, raise up the tribes of Jacob. Here it is. 12 tribes and will restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles. There it is. So that my safe, my salvation may reach the end of the earth. God is going to use, I believe these 144,000 committed, protected, believing Jews to infiltrate planet earth 
with the gospel of the kingdom, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. This gospel of the kingdom will go out to the ends of the earth and then the end shall come. And the byproduct and the fruit of these 144,000 fearless Jewish evangelists will be widespread universal salvation on the part of Gentiles like never seen before. It's going to be exciting. It is going to be exciting. It's not all bad news happening during the tribulation, at least from a believer's point of view. It's amazing. Fulfilling to the T, Isaiah 45, 22. Awesome. Verse four, 5 goes on. Uh, the sons of Israel. And then they list the 12 tribes. By the way, there's about 19 listings of the 12 tribes of Jacob through the Bible, starting in Genesis all the way to Revelation. Not one of those other 18 listings is identical to this one. This one is unique in a couple of respects. One thing that's unique about it, although a couple exist like this in the Old Testament, is that Judah is listed first out of the 12 tribes. Judah was not the older brother. Reuben was. But actually, Reuben was cursed in Genesis 49 for his compromise. If you read Genesis 49... When Judah is listed fourth, Judah is pointed out and zeroed in by God with a special blessing that Judah was going to be the most blessed of all of the 12 sons and their descendants because out of Judah would come the Messiah, the Prince, Jesus Christ, the King. And I believe that's why Judah is listed here first because through Judah came Jesus Christ. And that's why in Revelation chapter 5, two chapters back, when John was having a a crying fit in heaven. And remember, it was illegal to cry in heaven. There's no crying in baseball or in heaven. So there's John. And he sees the father holding the scroll and nobody's able to grab the scroll. And Revelation 5, 4, and Jesus, uh, John began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. There it is. From the tribe of Judah. Jesus, totally, perfectly qualified as the Messiah. Revelation 7, 5. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000. So this is going to be amazing. So these, these are literally given a seal and they are protected by God, uh, some would say, for the entire three and a half year period of the tribulation. And some commentators say that they will enter into the millennium in regular human bodies and will be resurrected at some point in the future because God protects them. So that's the first group. These are earthly believers who are Jews. And by the way, God is going to answer that promise and fulfill Revelation. I mean, uh, Romans 9 through 11 talks about how God's going to honor his promises to Israel. And at the very end of his argument in Revelation or Romans chapter 11, I think it's 26, God says and guarantees all Israel will be saved. In other words, God is going to save or deliver the entire and reunite the nation of Israel the same way he did corporately in the Old Testament. In the future, the nation of Israel will come to embrace it's Messiah. And here's the beginning. Here are the first fruits of it with these 144,000 Jews. No wonder all throughout history for 2,000 years and even today, so many people in the world hate the Jews, don't they? They despise the nation of Israel. That is not by chance or coincidence. It's not just a political issue either. That is satanically driven. Satan is trying to snuff out God's people from a historical point of view. Ain't going to happen. They're protected guarded, a faithful remnant, always saved by God for future greater purposes. That's the first group protected by God during the tribulation. Let's go on to the second group. They are uniquely protected at the same time in the tribulation. They are not protected and saved from earthly demise from their enemies, the Antichrist, his followers, because actually they end up getting killed for their faith. They're martyrs. But there is still a special protection given to them 
and that's a protection given to them up in heaven. So let's look at this second group, uh, 9 through 17, chapter 7. Uh, after these things I looked, so uh, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches, were in their hands. Again, this is not, there's just too many to count. This is a figurative expression. All specific numbers in Revelation are to be taken literally unless otherwise noted from the context. And here it's just a huge, massive, uncountable group of people. Uh, the fact that he says tribes, oh, nation, from every nation, every ethne, every geographical location on planet Earth, God makes no distinction. He saves people from every, doesn't matter what country you're born in or from. Jesus is still the Savior of the world, according to so many passages, John chapter 4 in particular. Uh, so there are going to be believers from every nation, every country on planet Earth, every tribe, that's even a smaller people group, uh, every kind of people, that, does, that speaks of every social class imaginable. It doesn't matter how much money you make, what your lot is. Uh, there's no caste system before God. Uh, also, it doesn't matter if you're a male or a female or an adult or a child. You are a soul made in the image of God, valued by God, saved by God. So this is everyone. Every class of human being. There is no partiality with God. That's the point. He's the Savior of the world. Every nation, tribe, people, tongue, the language you speak, doesn't matter. Because there's only going to be one language in heaven. He's going to bypass the curse of the curse of Babel from Genesis chapter 11. So this collective group of believing saints, and they all have one thing in common, that is that they know Jesus Christ personally, that He saved them. They all believe in the gospel. That's what knits their hearts together. And we could say the same thing about the beauty of the church, right? We've got every tongue, nation, people, tribe, lifestyle that has been saved by God and made one people before God through Jesus Christ. And we are all one family spiritually and eternally speaking. It's a blessed thing. That's why there's no room for Christians to be prejudiced the way the world understands it. The church shouldn't even have a problem with prejudice. As a matter of fact, the church should like, that's like a foreign concept. What are you talking about? There's one God, there's one Jesus, there's one church, there's one family. We are one people. As a matter of fact, Peter says we are one nation. We are one people before God, one holy people before him. It's a great promise. So here they are, and they're before the throne. In verse 10, it says, and they cry out with a loud voice. What are they saying? The best translation in chapter 10 is actually deliverance, not salvation. Because when John uses this word soteria and sozo, typical words for salvation, John always uses those, especially in the Gospel of John, of physical deliverance. As a matter of fact, John the Apostle in the Gospel of John never uses the word saved, like Paul does, to refer to forgiveness of sin. Here it could include that, but it includes more. And John is using it probably in an Old Testament way. Deliverance, salvation in the Old Testament almost always or the majority of time referred to physical deliverance by God. And with that physical deliverance would also be deliverance from sin. And so this, these people have been delivered by God. They were murdered, killed, died during the tribulation. They went immediately into the presence of God and they were rewarded with a white robe until they received their eternal resurrection body. They, they have palm branches in terms of victory and celebration, worshiping God. And they're crying out in worship to God, praising Him for what did He do? Well, what did God do to these persecuted believers during the tribulation? He delivered them. He delivered them from persecution, from Satan, from the Antichrist, from their sin, from the evil world, from eternal death and from the prospects of hell is how He delivered them. 
A multifaceted, beautiful Savior that we have. Deliverance belongs to our God who sits on the throne and equally to the Lamb. See, Jesus is equal with the Father. They are equated. Jesus isn't a sub-God or a man who worked his way to Godhood. He is equivalent with the Father. That is distinct of biblical Christianity. Deliverance belongs only to the Father and to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the triune saving God of the universe. Verse 11 And the angels are sitting around watching this. Man, they're excited because they don't understand salvation. Angels. They're scratching their head, according to 1 Peter. They're scratching their wings. What's this salvation stuff? This is kind of cool. Well, how can God do that? They were horrible sinners. I saw what that guy did that one time. And God forgave him. Can you believe it? I I can't believe it. How is this possible? So the angels don't understand salvation the way we do experientially. But they are excited about it. They rejoice when a sinner repents and gets saved, according to Luke 15. They rejoice in heaven when they see sinners saved and glorified before God. And so they're kind of watching these saved sinners who've been delivered, praising God before. And then the angels start clapping their hands. I mean, their wings, all six of them at the same time. This is exciting. Praise God. God, the deliverer and the savior. Verse 11, that's why it says all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, which were the cherubim with their six wings. Protecting the holiness of God. And they all fell on their faces. Can you imagine the four living creatures who had four faces falling on their faces? How do you do that? I don't know. (laughs) They fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God collectively and together. This crescendo of worship and praise up in heaven. Perfect. Undiluted. By self-centeredness. By sin. By the world. No distractions. Verse 12 and they start singing. Or they said in verse 12, Amen. Notice amen and amen at the end. So let it be. And it is so. Praise the Lord, brother. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. In other words, every conceivable attribute of the triune God of the universe is to be praised and given the credit for our deliverance. To be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Verse 13. Man, this is getting exciting around the throne. Verse 13. And one of the elders answered saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are, who are leading this crescendo of praise to God, who are they? And from where have they come? Well, the elder actually knew. And he's trying to evoke a thought and contemplation from John the Apostle. John probably doesn't know who they are. And that's why the way this is stated in the Greek text, it's pretty clear John doesn't know the answer. But he says, well, sir, you know, tell me. You're the one that's the elder. You tell me. And he does. Who are these multitude of people who've been delivered? Verse 14, and I said to him, my Lord, you know. And the elder said to John, well, here's who they are. These are the ones who come out, notice, of the great tribulation. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. I can't tell you how many commentaries on Revelation I read. And when it gets to describing and tell us who these saints are in Revelation chapter 7, they say, well, these are saints who have died all throughout the church age. Well, no, it's not. It says right here or there. These are saints who have all died since the time of Adam and Eve. No, it's not. These are the saints who have come out of the great tribulation. That's who they are. It's a finite number. But it's beyond counting because there's so many of them. And it's a specific group of people. These martyrs who died during the worst time in all of world history. Not They don't die from the wrath of God. They're protected from the wrath of God on earth. But they die being persecuted for Jesus Christ. They're killed. They're, they're murdered for their faith. Some may have died of natural causes during that time period. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed here. Notice the irony here. The supernatural, only God can do this. And they have washed their robe. A soiled robe in the Old Testament always referred to sin. 
in a picturesque way. Sin and a permanent sin. And we all have soiled garments as we walk through this life. And we need our garments to be cleansed. We need to be forgiven of sin. But only God can do that. And so their garments, how they live their life, they washed their robes and made them white. Wow. White, purity, forgiveness of sin. And by the way, it's a one-time act that happened in the past according to the the aorist tense here. At one point in time, they got to a point in their life where their robes were cleansed, pristine, uh, clear, white, total forgiveness of sin. It was a past action and it was completed by God and it was when they put their faith in Jesus Christ and in the gospel during their lifetime. That's what it means. They became clean, pure, white as snow. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, confessing your sin, and at some point in your life you asked Him to save you, and you did it legitimately and sincerely, He saved you in a moment of time, and He made your garments clean, pristine, spotless, unsoiled. How did He do it? The end of verse 14, they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. How can you wash something in blood? Blood stains permanently, doesn't it? It does. Well, this is the precious blood of the Lamb. This is referring to the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, He absorbed the wrath of God for every sinner that would trust in Him. Beautiful. The death of Christ. It is efficacious. It is the only thing that can save and impart forgiveness and cause one to be born again and adopted into the family of God and secure eternal salvation, be protected from sin and Satan, the world, death and hell. The blood of the Lamb. Jesus' death. It's all of Jesus. They didn't save themselves. It was all of Jesus. Jesus said that to his apostles. You didn't choose me. Ultimately, I chose you. When did you find God? I didn't. He found me. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. The precious Savior. It's all of him. All of his work on the cross. So these people were saved through a personal relationship by Jesus Christ. Evidently, they heard the gospel during the time of the tribulation. They didn't get saved at the rapture. They rejected God prior to the rapture. They didn't listen to the gospel. And then the church gets raptured, and all of a sudden, God's going to save a whole bunch of people during the tribulation, after the rapture. And they're going to respond to the gospel, and that's who these people are. They respond and get saved, live in the tribulation, die during the tribulation, and go instantly into heaven. No soul sleep waiting for eons to the end of the age, immediately in the presence of God upon death. That's what David prayed in Psalm 23, right? The very last line. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. That was the confidence he had that when he died, he would immediately be with God. That's the truth for Christians. Verse 15, for this reason, for this reason, they are before the throne of God. So you can't, God is a holy God and he cannot tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate. God hates sin. He must punish sin. He cannot have sin in His presence. And if anybody wants to be in the immediate presence of God, all of their sin must be wiped away, totally forgiven. And these people have only earned the right to be before God because of the work of Christ. That's what verse 15 says. For this reason, because Jesus saved them and made them clean. That's why they're before the throne of God. A holy God. And notice, they serve Him day and night in His temple. His temple at that point is in heaven. The temple of God is the presence of God, the immediate presence of God. And that's where they are. They are in heaven in his immediate presence. They are serving him. It is present tense. It means ongoing, continual, nonstop service before God. And there are a couple different words used for service. And this one is a term that means priestly service, many times used of priestly offerings and priestly sacrifices that went up to God that was pleasing to his nostrils, pleasing worship. So they're going to worship Him continually in a pleasing manner 
all of their days, which is really all of eternity. They serve him night and day in his temple. There are things to do. And it's not going to be boring in heaven, just in case you're wondering. I get that question from kids sometimes or teenagers. Heaven going to be boring? No. Are there any video games? Probably none like you've ever seen. You will be a video game in heaven. <laughs> For all I know, I don't know about that. That's McManusology. But anyway, it sounds cool. Serve him night and day in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle, his covering. A tabernacle is covering, it is a shelter, it is protection, it is safety, it is warmth, it is nurturing. There's that protection I'm talking about. They weren't protected from those who killed them in the tribulation, but they are protected eternally in heaven in the immediate presence of God. His banner over me is love. That's what it's talking about. Heaven is perfect. Better than anything we could ever conceive of. God's beautiful, protective tabernacle. And as a result of that tabernacling, protecting, caring presence of God over his people in heaven, verse 16 and 17 is a reality. They shall hunger no more. Maybe some of these people were hungering from the famine that happened in seal number three, the black horse. Maybe they were. When they get to heaven, they ain't going to hunger no more. They won't thirst anymore either. Neither shall the sun beat down on them the way it does at a couple times during the tribulation we'll see in Revelation. It's going to be perfect weather in heaven. Verse 17, so the circumstances, the environment, everything about heaven is perfect. For the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd, shall be their pastor. There's a per You want a perfect pastor? Don't go to this church. Uh, go to heaven. That's the only place you're going to find it. Jesus, the perfect shepherd. The lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and he shall guide them. How personal is that? And Jesus can do it. Even though there's countless people up in heaven, he's going to know you by name and he's going to take care of your needs individually. He is omniscient and he'll be able to do that. Very comforting. As a matter of fact, he has a secret name that only you and him know and share and exchange with one another. There's personal, intimate, ongoing, hands-on care from Jesus as your pastor. I love that because I, I need a pastor. And shall guide them to springs of the water of life. That means ongoing, total, complete, eternal satisfaction from God himself. How glorious. And then finally, he will deal with you emotionally. He'll take care of you emotionally. Here's a lot of physical needs and spiritual needs. But here, emotionally, God cares about everything about the human person. He cares about your emotions and what you're thinking and what you're struggling with. And the promise is he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. In other words, there are no tears. There's no crying in heaven. Pure joy, pure comfort, zero fear, zero anxiety. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome. That's heaven. And that's why Paul could say in Philippians, man, I got a lot of work to do as an apostle. And boy, I got to write 12 more books and uh, plant seven more churches. And wow, how am I going to do this? And man, I love heaven so much. I want to go to heaven. This is hard work. I keep getting beat up. I got stoned almost to death. I'm tired of this. Nobody likes me. I want to go to heaven, but no, I got to stay here. I got to... So Paul was torn. I want to stay here and honor God and do his work. But man, the glories of heaven are far better. I want to go there. And as you get older, you know what? You're going to realize that more and more as you're, if you're a believer. Heaven is far much better. With that, let's go to God, the God of heaven, and thank him for that great promise for believers. Father, we do thank you for our time together. Time to worship you, to learn from you to be encouraged by you. God, I thank you for this timely break 
in the book of Revelation in the midst of your wrath and fury to remind believers that you care for us. You, you love us. You want to be gracious to us. Meet our needs. Protect us. Provide for us. And thank you that you even do that in our life right now. God, help us to take comfort from that great truth today and every day this week. And in our weakness, you would hammer it home through the indwelling Holy Spirit to remind us of that great truth and other believers around us as well. So that you might receive the glory in all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.